Welcome to Foss and Crafts, a podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co-host Morgan and my co-host Chris. So today we are very excited to have our first special guest on the episode, Stefano Zaccarelli. Hello, hi everyone. Thanks, thank you for inviting me. We're thrilled to have you on. I'm especially excited because Stefano, uh, or Zach, as, as you often go by the internet, I guess, uh, I've known for quite a while. Um, so Zach is well known for their work in the past on being a Debian project leader at one point, uh, their activism in free and open source software in general, and also uh, your work at the organization called Software Heritage, which uh, I think we wanted to speak to you quite a bit about today. Um, so, hello, Zach. Uh, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, would you like, is there anything else that you'd like people who are listening to our show to know about you? Yeah, so I'm an Italian-French uh, researcher in computer science, currently a professor in computer science in Paris, and a researcher at INRIA. And in free software, has been I've been an activist for like more than 20 years now, uh, mostly in Debian up to until a few years ago, where I've done some packaging of even some popular packages like Vim, the editor, and then moved to quality assurance. And that's the, I think the last thing I did in Debian was the this Deb Sources platform to navigate through the source code of the entire Debian distribution. And then that got me excited and got me to Software Heritage, which I think we're going to discuss quite a bit in this show, which is essentially an archive of source code which is available out there. So my interest in a lot of uh, the topics we cover in the show is mostly coming from a GLAM perspective, which is a blanket term that covers galleries, libraries, archives, and museums. So, Zach, could you explain in a little bit more detail what Software Heritage is and how it fits into this history of archival collection? Yeah, sure. So th there is a, a long tradition of archiving digital material. Uh, but in that long tradition, we noticed a few years ago, I think it was 2015, that there was an angle which was kind of missing, or at least not treated in its full extent, which was the archival of all source code, which is publicly available. And that's where Software Heritage ties in. So Software Heritage is a project that has been started by Inuya and then supported by, uh, by a bunch of sponsors as a non-profit initiative, in which what we do is basically we collect, preserve, and share all the source code we can find, uh, which is publicly available, and we preserve it both in you know just a set of source code files and together with its full development history. The idea is that for developers who are using version control system to develop their code, be that Git, Subversion, or what you have it, uh, if their repository go away and the code disappears for some reasons, they can come back and find it in the Software Heritage Archive. In a sense, it's like a Wayback Machine of sort, for those of you who might have used that software product for, for the web, for version control system repositories. And that's what we do. So essentially, in practice, what we do is that we crawl the internet uh, to find where source code is either developed itself or just distributed. And we periodically uh, archive all those places in a single archive, which is then made available to everyone who wants to use it. Uh, we serve a bunch of different use cases, but I think we, we, we can discuss about that later. 
And essentially, in, there, there are a bunch of, to answer your question, Morgan, we are the archive for source code. And the idea is that we want to archive all the source code which is available out there. We strive to be exhaustive. Of course, we cannot claim to be that already, but uh, we, do, we are already the largest archival source code which exists uh, today. Yeah, so one of the issues that uh, other GLAM institutions often face is choosing what to preserve. And a lot of times those decisions are permanent. So in archaeology, for example, um, you dig everything up and you don't necessarily send everything to a museum, which has hurt my research in that um, small finds like spindle whorls are often not the things that are kept because they weren't considered important, they weren't decorative, they weren't pretty, they weren't valuable. But then now, 150 years later, when I'm trying to study uh, production of textiles, that archival record doesn't necessarily exist in physical form anymore. Yes, that's interesting, Um, especially because I guess the preservation of software is a bit different. I, Zach, what what do you think is the most important stuff to preserve in terms of software, and and how does software heritage go about making those decisions of of what to preserve and the the mechanisms of preserving it? Right. So th- there are at least two things I I think which are interesting to discuss here. So the first one is the the type of artifact that you preserve. So essentially, before we we started looking into that, uh, at least at this scale, uh, most of the initiatives we have seen in for the preservation of software were concerned about preserving the executable form of software. So in, in the the idea there is that you have a software as a kind of as if it were a tool that you are using today to do stuff, and you do not want to lose the ability for doing that stuff in the future. So imagine you have an old Palm uh, Pilot or whatever, or whatever product that you used before smartphones, or anyway, a software that you used to use on a very old operating system which no longer exists today, but you still want to be able to run that software, for instance, to access your old data. So the kind of preservation that is done for this software is focused on preserving the functionality of the software itself. And it's very valuable, and there were already a bunch of initiatives taking care of that. But something different is preserving the source code, and we think it is really valuable to do so because the the knowledge, the human knowledge about the software itself is only stored in the source code itself. So essentially, source code is a very interesting, uh, I, I would say, product of the human intelligence in which you can read the source code and find user, find important information in there, even if you do not run it. A piece of source code can be as valuable as a scientific paper or as a new discovery because a developer can look at it and figure out the technique that has been implemented in that piece of code. And so the, the specific role of software heritage is making sure that source code itself is preserved and not lost when its hosting place or the home page of the developer who published it goes away. So that's the, the main idea. The other angle, which I think is interesting for what you said, Chris, is that essentially how do you decide which pieces of source code you want to preserve and which you do not want to preserve? And the interesting part about source code is that it takes a lot of time, a lot of mental energy to produce, but after it is produced, it's actually pretty concise, it's pretty small. It's, it's, it's in general just text, right? So uh, developers who are listening can pro- probably relate with the experience in which they've spent a day fixing a bug, which results in just a two-line differences with respect to pre- the previous version of the code. So we are in the essentially fortunate situation in which 
we are able to preserve all the source code which we can find out there. So we are trying to, to do that rather than trying to decide which pieces of software should be preserved and which not. We go after all the forges that are, that are, that are out there and try to store for the very long term all of them. Uh, just, just as a quick follow-up, um, not everybody might know what a forge means or how software is conventionally hosted uh, today. So for, for those of us uh, who are listening who, who might not be familiar with the term forge, could you define that and how it relates to uh, development and retrieval of software? Yeah, and I guess that term also shows that we're, we're we've been kind of old in that area because it's I don't even think it's a term which is that much used anymore. But essentially, software software which is publicly available is generally developed as a collaboration between several developers. So there are many websites out there that are used as platforms to collaborate and together create software. So one of the most popular one is GitHub today. There are others. There there is GitLab. Uh, there there was there still is Bitbucket. So there are a bunch of of these platforms. And I guess the name Forge come from one of the earliest platform, which is SourceForge. And there's, there have been a bunch of iteration of these platform over time. One issue, if we're talking about free culture and glam institutions that we kind of need to bring up is the access and control of materials. So, for example, image access to objects in galleries and museums. Um, some institutions are very good at making that public. For example, the Metropolitan Museum makes almost everything um, open access. And then some museums lock things down. For example, the Louvre has very strict licensing control over the images of their collections. And then other museums and archives limit the photographs you can take within as another method of controlling access to these things. Also, one of the ways in which things tend to be locked down tends to be kind of intellectual restriction laws that are used. For example, uh, I I know that we've had a lot of conversations about the way that copyright especially is used um, by institutions that might hold the work that's even in the public domain, mm -hmm. but they might be the only ones that have uh, a photograph of that of this painting or something like that, and they might try to put that under copyright, or they might also have you sign some sort of agreement when you walk into the museum that that says that you have to that that you're basically you can't like share the photographs uh, outside of your limited arrangement or stuff like that is is that about right well that last one is mostly something that happens if they're granting you access to their uh, archives so things that are in storage um usually when you walk into a museum they either allow you to take photographs and you can take photo those photographs and use them or they just restrict photo access and you can't take photographs mm -hmm. okay but i i think that there's a, a tie-in back over to free software and free culture clearly in that a lot of the work that we do is concerned with the ways in which copyright restrictions especially on software but also on you know, other cultural works ends up re restricting our ability to copy, modify, reuse, and so on. So I, Zach, I wonder how does that affect software heritage, especially since you do live in an environment in which there may be these intellectual restriction laws placed on the stuff that you would like to be able to make available, I'd imagine. Right, yes. So essentially, for now, we are the, the, the main priority for us is archiving all software which is available in source code for uh, publicly, so that 
kind of helps already because it's source code which has already been at least published uh, uh, on the internet or another media in source code form. So that's a bit better than if we were uh, working on preserving all proprietary software, so non-free software, for instance. Uh, but so even in that case, of course, we archive some source code, which is itself free software in the sense that it can be freely modified and distributed. But we also archive some source code, which in theory cannot be freely distributed or modified today. So the idea is that as long as we can archive it, we will archive it if we can find it, download it, and store on our servers. Uh, one day, the, copy, the copyright that, that it's applied to those pieces of source code will expire. And at that point, if we have archived it properly, it will become effectively free software for everyone uh, to use. So this is also a kind of another advantage, if you want, of the approach of archiving everything we can find because we are archiving all the stuff, software which today is already free software and we are also enabling essentially archival of software that will one day become free software. Um, in some ways this feels different from other glam and archival issues because it's software and especially because it's digital. So once things are digital that really facilitates reuse and modification in ways that we don't necessarily get in museums. So you can't take a piece of artwork and physically modify it because that would be destructive and it would um, basically damage one of the main purposes of the museum, which is preservation. Yeah, that, that, that's true. So essentially, that's a very different kind of uh, job with respect to museum of physical things. And I guess that might explain the differences between what you were saying for museums and our case, in which essentially we're doing all we can to enable free access to all the content we have, we have archived. So when we defined our mission, we said three things, which is uh, collect, preserve, and share. And the last part, sharing, is very important for us. So the idea is not archiving stuff and put that behind a closed door that you need to ask explicit permission to open. So what we're doing instead is archiving and making it available immediately from the day it is archived to everyone that can access it. There are some technical limitations because I haven't mentioned that, that we are already archiving more than 130 million projects that make several billion files. So the technical needs enable to everyone to access all those files are actually complicated. But we, we tried, but that's just a technical limitation. It's not something we are doing on purpose to make it difficult for people to access the code. On the contrary, we are trying to maximize the access to that code. And we're also working with other institutions to create mirrors of the archive around the world so that, you know, you can have local access that when you have that much data, it really helps rather than accessing it to the uh, across the ocean or something. Does that also speak to what what is software heritage maybe also not trying to do? Because it seems like you're primarily focusing on making the software available. Um, but how does that stand in contrast to, I mean, if we think about kind of the, the core free and open source software pro principles of, you know, the rights to copy, redistribute, and modify software, and, and sorry, copy, run, redistribute, modify, then how does that uh, affect the those rights effectively in terms of your work do you actually try to actively facilitate that or is that not your primary role at software heritage no we we totally want to facilitate that but only in the sense of making it available because you know in, in free software the first practical thing you need to be able to exercise your freedoms is actually having access to the source code itself so we are doing that part. We are trying to make sure that software which is available today in source code form does not get lost. Uh, 
so that if tomorrow you want to exercise your freedom and that piece of software is no longer available in source code for from the place you expect it to be available from, you can come to the archive and find it again. But we are not a platform for, you know, doing the collaborative editing of the software ourselves. We're trying to enable others to do that. An idea which has been uh, on the back of my mind for a while is on top of the archive to actually uh, create a view, a filtered view that only shows free software, software which we have archived, which is free software today, but that requires some heuristics and some curation, so it's, it didn't happen yet. But that can be another way to enable what you were saying. So it could be even a place where you go browsing, looking out for free software that you might be interested in, even if you are not looking for a specific piece of code. Yeah, that's all very interesting. And it also brings up kind of an idea of uh, provenance. So knowing in your archive, you said, you mentioned that people can come to your archive even if they can't find that source code where they expected to find it. So you're also preserving um, the provenance of where that came from. And that's a very large issue in other GLAM institutions as well. So we've got a lot of museums that get in hot water over lack of provenance because they either purchased or had pieces donated that came from questionable sources that they weren't necessarily acquired illegally, but we don't have the provenance and that harms our ability to study it. And... This also leads into provenance of research and information in both the arts and sciences. So we need to know where information and ideas and source code come from in order for that to be uh, applicable to larger research. Um, and this also includes scientific studies, etc. That also seems interesting and relevant to me because... Uh, when you are trying to reproduce and kind of uh, discover software that existed at one point in time, you also often need to be able to reproduce it in a context of all of the things that were used to build that software back then as well. So like if you've got some, you know, some program that's, you know, like a browser or something like that, and you wanted to be able to have that browser work the same way it worked 10 years ago, you also need like the image rendering libraries and stuff like that from 10 years ago, which means we need to not just have the provenance of the things that we have immediately in front of us, but also all the things that those things required. Um, and I know that Geeks actually uses software heritage as a way to be able to find software that, as you said, you know, you might not be able to find it in its original location. If something goes down, software heritage is one place you might still be able to find the software and it might look for it. And both Geeks and Debian, uh, I think, are both projects that are very interested in the idea of reproducibility. So could you speak to what that means and what software heritage's role there in terms of uh, provenance and reproducibility? Yeah, sure. So uh, we have essentially discussed thus far the uh, cultural heritage angle of software heritage. So basically the topic we addressed thus far is that there is knowledge in software and that's only stored in source code and that's why we want to archive it to avoid losing it. But software heritage has a bunch of other use cases and one is related to science. Uh, so one angle uh, of science which is related to what we do is that we want to enable scientists to analyze all the body of source code which is available out there 
So we do that. Uh, but the other angle you mentioned is actually related to reproducibility. So there's been, there's been a lot of debates in the, the crisis of reproducibility in science. And a lot of it has been related to the fact that the softer part of scientific experiments, uh, which is actually everywhere in all kinds of experiments. So today software is used not only in computer science, of course, not only in, uh, in physics or maths, but it's, it's, just, it's used in all disciplines of, of science. And essentially the point is once you have some software part in your experiment, how do you enable others to rerun your experiment or to verify your experiment? Uh, which are two different but related things. So the, the ability to rerun is the ability to verify independent your research and also to build on top of the result of your research for doing other experiments. And then you have the angle of being able to verify your work, which is essentially related to the whole process that we have in science of doing peer review. So for instance, enabling reviewers of your work to verify the, the software you've written to support your experiment because your results depend on it. And so what we're doing in Software Heritage is that enabling researchers to deposit uh, source code which they depend upon in their papers and refer where it is in the archive. And that enables both of the use cases we have discussed. So we have, for instance, collaboration with uh, scientific journals in which you can deposit your paper in a preprint uh, server uh, and also collaborate with uh, that preprint server so that it, they will push their source code to us. So we do that, creating additional copy of that source code and also enabling to see where that source code will, will be used in, in the future. And related to, so this is the, the part of uh, reproducibility in science itself. So we are helping with that. And then there is the part of uh, reproducible builds, which is related to Geeks and Debian, as you have mentioned, Chris, in which essentially there are a bunch of projects out there which are trying to make sure that if you rebuild the same software from source code to its executable form twice, you get exactly the same file which is a very important thing for being able to verify that nobody has tampered with the, the source code between uh, when you have uh, seen it and when you have downloaded it, for instance. And we are helping with that in the sense that if you are trying to rebuild some source on some software, the first thing you do usually is to go to the, to the website that distributes the software, retrieve the specific version you are interested in, and build it. So we are working with projects like Geeks so that if that specific source code, piece of source code is, is gone, has disappeared, they can fall back to our archive to retrieve exactly the same version of that software that they were expecting to find and actually redo the build using the source code coming from, uh, from our archive. And that ties in what Morgan was, was, was mentioning about provenance, because the, in order to be able to do that, we also keep track of where we have retrieved software that we archive. Essentially, if you, again, if you've used the Wayback Machine for web pages, you, you know that you have this kind of calendar interface in which you can enter the URL of the website you were looking for and see all the different versions of that website which have been archived. And we do the same thing for software distributing source code, which are usually version control system or can also be the homepage of researcher of software developers that, that distribute their source code that way. So you can see where we have downloaded software from and all the different versions we have archived and actually go back and forward in time to see uh, how the software has changed between different archival runs, essentially. So doesn't reproducibility of scientific studies also require being able to reproduce the original data too? So then we have to have an intersectional aspect of code and data needing to work together in order to enable reproducible research? 
Oh yeah, that, that's a great question. So essentially, in our view, there is a basically a trifecta of uh, open science, which is open access to the papers, open data, and open source software or free software, but just open works better with the other two. Mm -hmm. uh, essentially, the idea is that there were already solutions for archiving uh, uh, papers in an open access way. So there are a bunch of preprint servers that are available all over the world. There were already platforms where you can deposit open data, uh, open data set, even pretty large. So there, there is the, uh, the open access part to the papers, which is already supported by tools and infrastructure. There was There is the open data part, which is also already well supported by platforms, for instance, Zenodo, uh, offered by, by CERN in, uh, in Switzerland is a famous platform for that. But the angle of depositing source code for long-term preservation and referencing it from scientific paper was essentially missing. So there are a lot of paper that just point to uh, development platform as reference for the source code they've used, expecting that those platforms will stay around forever while we know the development platform at some point disappear. We have already lost a bunch of forges, as we discussed before in the past. So if you just reference source code from one of those forges in a scientific paper, it can be gone. So yeah, totally. These three things need to work together and you need to have identifiers to reference all the different things in all three areas of uh, human production, if you want. But we, we are working on the source code part because we noticed that it was missing. When you have that source code in your in your in your system we already discussed a little bit about how there are issues of both reproducibility provenance and also uh, whether or not you have the legal right to be able to redistribute and modify the software and in a certain sense that actually often ends up getting combined with both the provenance side and the legal right to redistribute and modify because you know if you're if you spend enough time in the free and open source software community you hear the words license compliance get thrown around, which is, you know, we could think of like, if we can we actually combine all of these pieces of software in a way that they legally permit. So that seems like a big issue in the free and open source software world. Does that end up affecting software heritage or does software heritage help inform that in any way? And, and is this restricted to free and open source software? Oh my God, so many, so many things there that I would like to discuss. So, uh, yeah, so it's related to what we do for sure. Uh, regarding maybe the, the first topic you mentioned, so license compliance. So we hope we are helping with that as well, but with, uh, with only a part of that problem. So there is a, a lot of tools that are supposedly uh, used to help people comply with the terms of free software licenses. But what's actually annoying about many of those tools is that they rely on essentially known free data sets to determine which license the software you're using in your products is, is licenses under. So with Software Heritage, we do one part of that, which is essentially crawling the web and taking note of where different versions of specific source code files are distributed from. And given we archive them very precisely without changing anything, essentially you can use our archive as a some sort of prior art database taking note of this source code file was distributed from that website at that time, where we as Software Heritage define the time as the time we have done we have done the crawling. So if we give that evidence and one goes looking at that file and that file says it is distribu distributed under the uh, GPL license, that's 
evidence that might help determining that that specific piece of code was distributed under that license at that specific time. And we provide all that data as, as open data for anyone who wants to use it. What we do not do is actually doing claims like we state that that file is released under that license. That's something we do not do because often to determine that you need some legal processes and you know it's not enough that to see to see the text saying this is under this license to determine that. And sometimes that's not marked correctly even. Yeah, it might be marked incorrectly. The person who's done the market might not be the legitimate copyright owner. I mean, there, there, you know, there are a bunch of complicated issues there. But at least we're providing essentially the timestamp saying that file was distributed from there at that time. That helps with uh, determining the, the provenance chain, which as we were discussing before, of some source code, and might also help in some cases in, in validating bad software patents. So if you find an old version of something which a company claims to have patented, which was distributed before that company filed for a patent under a free and open source license, well, that can help in invalidating that patent. Uh, so that, that that's an angle, and I'm not sure what else you were you wanted to discuss. I forgot about that. I got carried away. <laughs> uh, I think I think it was also the industry tie-in. Right. So essentially, the, that that's one part. The other part is that there are some industries who want to be good players and want to make sure that the free and open source software which is associated to their products remain available in the long run. For instance, we are collaborating with large companies that says surprising stuff to us, but which is apparently true, which is, imagine I have a device on the market and that device contains some software licensed under the GPL. And so they want to provide the complete and corresponding source code of all that software to their customers. So one way they do that is that they distribute the source code from the company website. But for large companies, apparently keeping a URL that they've put in the manual valid for the <laughs> shelf time of the product is actually very complicated. I was surprised by that, but that's what I've been told. Because, you know, companies get separated in different departments. They got merged with other companies. And at some point, the URL goes 404 and they are immediately in violation of the GPL if people are trying to retrieve the code from that URL. Oh, man. So what we are doing is, is working with those companies, providing a way so that they can deposit directly the source code to our archive and put in the archive the URLs to our archive, to the, essentially the copy, the archived copy of that source code in our archive, which are stable, which is guaranteed to be stable. So that's a tiny, teeny things again, but it helps in making sure that customers will always find the source code for the device they're using. I, I like that the industries are outsourcing their archiving. <laughs> to <laughs> well, you know, another institution. By doing that, they're usually also supporting us with some sort of, uh, you know, uh, sponsoring for our non-profit mission of preservation. So that's fine. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Always helpful. Uh, you bring up that software heritage isn't primarily about reuse and modification directly, but it does enable it. And one of the big concerns in any project that has changes happening to it is what is the governance process? Yeah, so essentially this this is related to the notion of commons, which is a notion I'm a, I'm a big fan of. So in aside from digital stuff, the commons are basically resources which is accessible to all members of societies uh, and which are not held by some private owner. They're just held in common. 
And when you move to digital goods, there is this notion of the digital commons and specifically of software commons. And the, this idea of the software commons is that it's all the software which is uh, freely or very cheaply available to everyone for both use, distribution, and modification. And of course, both you and your, your audience, I'm sure, know that this is very much related to the, uh, to the notion on free and open source software. And mm-hmm. so the, the, there, there is this question of, how are we doing in terms of software commons? Because essentially every time a developer pushes, publishes some piece of source code under a free license, they are contributing to this software commons. But the question is, are we taking care of that software commons or are we risking of falling into the uh, that expression which is from a famous study of the tragedy of the commons, which is actually a, a misnomer because the, the tragedy is not of commons in general, but of uh, uh, it can happen to commons which are not properly managed. And so our idea with software heritage is that we are helping in managing and avoid losing parts of the software commons. So essentially, we are creating an infrastructure that enables uh, collecting and preserving in the long term all parts of the software commons so that we reduce the risk of losing them. So we are playing our part in tending to this commons, which for me is very important, which is the software commons essentially. It's interesting that you you talked about the software commons and the idea of the tragedy of the commons. So if if anybody isn't familiar uh, with the tragedy of the commons, uh, t- Zach, correct me if I've got this uh, summary down real quick. The idea is that basically you have a field and there's a bunch of sheep on it. And uh, the, you're only supposed to have one sheep in there, but you, nobody's governing it really. And somebody puts in two sheep and then the other person's like, well, I'm now not getting my optimal amount of sheep space. So they put in two sheep and then eventually uh, the grass can't sustain it and the commons collapses effectively. And I think this is also related to another common problem that gets brought up, which is the free rider problem, Correct. which I actually think is more applicable to free software in some some ways, where is uh, the the problem that people often complain about. And I think we're seeing a bunch of pushback in some ways because free and open source software has become popular enough that you end up seeing at one time we thought we might never have any corporate adoption. And now corporate adoption is so large that people are like, wait a minute, this is just corporations tricking developers into doing things for free. And the free rider problem is where you have a bus system and the first person who gets on the bus has to pay some large amount, and then everyone else gets it for free. And uh, what's what's interesting about all of these problems is that they get more interesting when there's a physical restriction, especially in the tragedy of the commons where you have the field and the sheep, like there's a limited amount of resources there. But something that's very different about digital resources generally is that they're non-rivalrous. If you make a copy of a piece of software, no matter what DRM enthusiasts, uh, which are all companies, there's no other DRM enthusiasts, but uh, what they they might tell you, every time you make a copy, it doesn't destroy the original copy. Because of that, that ends up kind of changing the the mechanisms of what these whole software commons, tragedy of the commons, and free rider problem things are. Yeah, so um, just riffing off of what Zach then you just talked about with the tragedy of the unattended commons and the initial tragedy of the commons being that people were just putting their sheep in and there was too much grazing. So it sounds like the solution that uh, Software Heritage is is coming up with to the tragedy of the commons is that you're becoming the shepherd of the commons, right? So if you had someone managing the sheep then you wouldn't have 
as big of a problem with overgrazing because you can move them. Very, very good summary from, from both of you. So essentially the idea is that you need to have rules for managing the commons, which are good enough so that it remains a commons for everyone who wants to use it, but which are not uh, as broad as allowing too much free riding, which will destroy the commons. That would be my my, my short summary. And the point in, in uh, you're, you're right, Chris, that of course digital goods are non-rivalers, but the fact is that's not enough because you have bits that correspond to a source code file posted somewhere on the internet. And it's true that it doesn't cost anything to you know do a copy of that bits, but someone still needs to pay for the hosting of those bits. Otherwise, the day someone will shut off the last server hosting those bits, mm. those bits are, are lost forever. Essentially, so that, that's essentially where you should need to, where we, we should essentially think of the free writing problem here. If we care about not losing knowledge which is stored in source code, someone need to pay for at least one copy of that source code to remain accessible for a while, or at least store it somewhere in a physical device. But then if you store it in a physical device, you need to pay someone that, you know, go and retrieve that physical device the day you need it. Okay. So essentially what we're trying to enable is in part a collective consciousness of the importance of doing that. So we are also working on the on the cultural part of saying this is important. You need to care about that. And second, doing the first part of archiving stuff, which is urgent to archive today because it might be gone tomorrow. Uh, so maybe some of your uh, people in your audience are developers that are using Mercurial and were hosting code on, on Bitbucket, for instance. It's a company who decided to shut off the support of that specific uh, version control system. And so if we didn't archive it, well, it could have been lost forever. Okay. Uh, so, the, so there is that part, some urgent stuff, you need to do that. And then there is the long-term question of how do you make that viable? Of course, I do not think that people should rely on ourselves alone for doing that, because of course we also are a single point of failure. So, but we are we're conscient of that. So, what we are doing is working on building mirror network, creating a viable non-profit business model that makes this available, and also making sure that even if we disappear or if we go crazy, there are other copies of the archive, in other places not controlled by us that we cannot destroy ourselves. So that you know you can find those pieces of code in the future if you need it. So so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna jump in and say, and I know not all of our uh, listeners might be familiar with how Git works, but for those who are, uh, one thing that's very nice is that if you have a copy of a Git repository, if you are referring to you know this commit this set this in this name of the software that refers to this specific period of time, you can have multiple people reproduce and like basically clone that whole git repository locally so that it doesn't actually matter which place it's being hosted at you can still refer to that same commit and my guess is uh, that your solution to trying to reduce the single point of failure in software heritage is a similar solution without necessarily being exactly built on git of uh, that kind of uh, idea is that about right yeah, that, that, that's about right. The thing is, uh, it, it's pretty great that in Git, so I think Linus Torvalds said that uh, you shouldn't build a backup system, you should build something like Git so that everyone in the world has, has your own code. That's a very bad quote. It probably didn't say it that way, but that was the, his idea. But the point is that, sure, it's true that when you use something like Git, there are a bunch of people around the world that have all the code that you also have on your machine. But the day you need it, you need to know who to ask for the code you need. So if, if you don't know where that 
person is, what the URL of the repository is, you will not be able to retrieve the code the day you need it. So with the idea of building an archive, let's say a famous archive in the sense of it should be notorious, people should know it exists. The idea is that people will have a go-to place where you can go and retrieve that commit or that file or whatever else it was stored in Git. And also, let's try to remember that if you look in the you know, in a very long term, well, Git is a technology of today. Will it still be the main technology used for software development 50 years from now, 100 years from now? I have no idea. So what we're trying to store is all the information which is in Git or similar systems and also in just you know zip files, if, if source code is distributed in zip files, and try to make it sure it will remain available in the long term. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Oh, Morgan, do you have any other questions, or are we at the approximately the end of our interview? That was at the end of uh, the interview for the most part. Zach, do you have any concluding uh, remarks you would like to make? Uh, no, maybe I sh should just uh, thank you, because not to you for this show, but in general for... So we, we are trying to build software heritage in the most free software uh, classic way in the sense that all the technology we use is for software itself. Uh, all the software we develop ourselves for creating software heritage is free software. So doing what we're doing would just not be possible without all the uh, source code which is available out there as uh, free software and all the people that you know help creating it and keep maintaining it in the on a daily basis. All right. Well, great, Zach. Thank you for joining us here on the show. It was really wonderful to have you here and at. And we feel really privileged to have somebody as wonderful of a person and uh, who works on such a interesting things as you are as our first guest on Foss and Crafts. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a great show and a great pleasure for me. Cheers. Foss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Christopher Lemmerweber. The intro music is composed by Christopher Lemmerweber, meaning myself, and Milky Tracker, and is released under the same license as the show. The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project, and is waved into the public domain under CC01.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts at octodon.social on twitter as at foss and crafts or you can email us podcast at fossandcrafts.org we also have a chat room join our community hash foss and crafts on irc.freenode.net if you'd like to support the show you can donate at patreon.com forward slash c-w-e-b-b-e-r that's it for this week until next time stay free and stay crafty By the way, I there is a very loud uh, airplane yes, outside. What's that? It's an airplane, I think. Yeah, is that what's going okay. on? It's it's coming from our house because it's in both rooms. Okay. Yeah, I, <laughs> I was I was wondering whether it was me or not. No, it's not you. It's the airplane. Although, is it done now? It's, yeah. It seems to have passed. Okay. Whew.